The following podcast is sponsored by the Hood College Gear Shop. The Gear Shop replaces the old Hood College bookstore. Most of us remember the bookstore as the place where we bought or rented books. Well, that's not the case anymore. The Hood College Gear Shop is a great place to buy all kinds of things. Need some Hood branded merch? You'll find hoodies and t-shirts, hats and scarves, sweats and socks, mugs and cups. They even have Hood branded blankets. Low on shampoo or soap? They have you covered. Bad breath before class? Buy some gum or Tic Tacs. Need a pen, highlighter, or notebook? The Gear Shop has tons. Does your roommate have a dog? Buy them a Hood College leash or collar. Need some Advil or Tums? The Gear Shop has your back. Do you need a last-minute birthday gift for a friend? You'll find plenty of options. What I'm saying is the Hood College Gear Shop has you covered for all your gift, school, snack, and Blazer-branded clothing needs. Mention my name, Ellie Cooper, and the name of this podcast, Think Pink, to receive 10% off your purchase of any Hood-branded merch. But listen to the show first. Join me, Ellie Cooper, host of Think Pink, while I examine periods throughout history where people explore life outside the typical construct. I will also be using pop culture references like The Matrix to entice listeners. So, stick around to find out how The Matrix series relates to the idea of gender identity. Hello, and welcome to Think Pink a new podcast where I talk about all things that emanate the color pink. Whether that be something that's considered feminine or otherwise, we'll be covering it all. I'm your host, Ellie Cooper of Think Pink, and I'm looking forward to sharing my interests with you. While this podcast totally serves me more than you, as it kind of serves as a self-contained diary, I hope you can find some elements that are relatable and interesting to you. Maybe you come to find out you're more feminine than you realize, or maybe you want to learn more about the female perspective, or maybe someone tricked you into listening to this podcast. But if so, stick around. Maybe you'll learn something. And with that, let's think pink. For this episode, I wanted to talk about gender constructs and a little bit about sexuality, I guess, but mainly the queer community and queer identities. Today, we'll be exploring the history regarding the existence or presence of transgender individuals and highlighting some prominent people from these categories. I first want to go over the history then we'll go over the term transgender itself, and then we'll talk about some cool people. So let's get into it. So first off, the term transgender wasn't really coined until the 1960s in America. And this is coming from an article from National Geographic. In 1952, a young woman sat down to write a letter to her family. The act itself was nothing remarkable. Christine Jorgensen was 26 and preparing to return to the United States after undergoing some medical procedures in Denmark. But the contents of Jorgensen's letters were entirely unique. Quote, I have changed very much, end quote, she told her family, enclosing a few photos. But I want you to know that I'm an extremely happy person. Nature made a mistake, which I have had corrected, and I am now your daughter, end quote. As the first American to undergo gender confirmation surgery, Jorgensen would arguably be the world's most famous transgender woman of her era. Her remarkable transition from a male-presenting soldier to a polished feminine public figure would be a watershed in trans visibility. In the early 20th century, medical advances made hormone therapy and gender confirmation surgery possible. 
thanks in part to Dr. and reformer Mangus Hirschfeld's Institute of Sexual Research in Germany, founded in 1919, medical gender confirmation changed both trans people's lives and public conceptions of gender. Nonetheless, early surgery attempts were crude. For example, one of the Institute's first gender confirmation patients, German transgender woman Lilia Elb, died in 1931 after a failed uterine transplant. So that article really highlighted some instances of transgender people who conform to the typical idea of how a woman would present. Because in that case, she wanted to present as a woman and got reconstructive surgery. On top of that, though, the presence of transgender people has, again, existed for even longer than that. I want to talk about this article that I found from theindigenousfoundation.org. Basically, it goes into the existence of two spirit folks, and it kind of explains what that all means. Because I had a class two years ago, I think, where the class's main focus surrounded the idea of LGBTQ plus peoples uh, around the world, like as a global perspectives course. My professor provided us with a piece of written text that kind of documented the existence of um, people in America before European settlers arrived, um, where they experienced a different type of gender identity than, than the two that we are more aware of. You can tell that I'm not very proficient on this, but <laughs> I still find it very interesting. So the article states that the concept of two-spirit folks existed well before the arrival of European settlers on Turtle Island. Indigenous individuals who identified as two-spirit folks were seen as gifted and honored in their community because they carried two spirits within them, both male and female. Two-spirit folks were often the healers, medicine people, and visionaries within their given community, and they were foundational members of their culture. Most of this can be attributed to the double vision, quote-unquote, two-spirit people are gifted with being able to see both through the masculine and feminine lens. Two-spirit people, as well as all indigenous peoples on Turtle Island, were deeply impacted and harmed by the effects of colonization. One major impact on two-spirit folks was the introduction of residential schools, which forced extremely heteronormative roles onto indigenous children. Colonization resulted in two-spirit folks losing their way of life and culture, and the effects of that are still very real today and should be brought to light. Throughout the process of colonization and the devastating effects that came along with it, the respect and honor two-spirit folks had was lost, and their roles diminished in society. The homophobic attitudes and ideas that are present in society have eroded the ways in which two-spirit folks are treated. However, many two-spirit folks have worked to regain their power and place in the community and culture through education and healing. Through these acts of healing and the restoration of identity, two-spirit folks are being reclaimed as sacred. Although the concept of two-spirit folks has been around for a long time, the term was proposed only in 1990. During the third annual Intertribal Native American, First Nations, Gay, and Lesbian American Conference, which was held in Winnipeg, Elder Myra Laramie put forth the term. The term two-spirit is a translation of the Anishinibowan term, Nishmadiowag, which translates to two spirits. It's important to remember that notions, ideas, and identity should not be generalized to all indigenous peoples and cultures. Due to the diverse and culturally specific nature of these traditions and understandings, it is crucial to recognize that the concept of two-spirit folks is not universal to all indigenous worldviews. Additionally, when discussing the concept of two-spirit individuals, it is necessary to remember that it is not an identity that non-indigenous people can adopt or claim. 
So that's why I thought this would be a good article to talk about because it pinpoints some pretty specific examples of gender identities that don't really align with the typical construct. Additionally, I wanted to read some paragraphs from this other article that's more of a scholarly one regarding the health of two-spirit and native LGBTQ plus individuals. Not because I want to get too scholarly, but basically to show that, again, like my women in sports episode, there is an underrepresentation of research regarding women's health based on physical exertion, um, and specifically women of color. This next article is from Tanned F Online. The article states that findings suggest that Two-Spirit and Native LGBTQ individuals are underrepresented in current health research. Existing research prioritizes a disease-specific perspective. Future research focused on intersectional identity formation, connectedness, and culture as a and culture as a protective factor is needed. There are over 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States, and even more state-recognized and unrecognized tribes, and even more state-recognized and unrecognized tribes. Each of these tribes have their own culture, history, knowledge, and way of referring to themselves. Throughout this article, we will be using the term native to refer to the indigenous people of the United States and Canada. The article goes on to state that prior to colonization, concepts of gender identity in Native communities were diverse and the acceptance of gender diversity was high. Two-spirit people, quote, whose behaviors or beliefs may be interpreted by others to be uncharacteristic of their sex, end quote, were often expected to take on roles as medicine peoples, mentors, teachers, and healers. This practice of diverse gender acceptance in Native communities has been dramatically altered through colonization and the forced assimilation process. However, the history of Native acceptance of Two-Spirit and LGBTQ identities remains in the teachings and wisdom of Native ancestors and Two-Spirit elders living today. Many Two-Spirit and Native LGBTQ plus people credit their elders as sources of affirmation and support. This combination of historical acceptance and contemporary marginalization is unique to Two-Spirit and Native LGBTQ communities. While both Native and LGBTQ plus communities experience unique cultural strengths, traditions, and histories that promote good health and wellness, research on both populations generally focuses on health disparities. From this research, we know that LGBTQ plus individuals are more likely to experience homelessness, unemployment, and lack of access to appropriate healthcare and housing services. These social detriments lead to health disparities including higher rates of sexually transmitted infections, substance abuse, mood disorders, and suicide. Native people are more likely to experience homelessness, poverty, and a lack of targeted education and employment services. Discrimination has been consistently linked to adverse health effects for both Native and LGBTQ people. Two-spirit and Native LGBTQ people face layers of discrimination, heterosexism and cisnormativity within some Native communities, racism and stereotyping within non-Native LGBTQ communities. Initial surveys, including the 2015 U.S. Transgender Surveys Report on the existences of American Indian slash Alaska Native respondents, 50% of Native trans people had experienced homelessness. 21% had lost a job because of their trans identity. One in two trans people who accessed healthcare in the last year reported a negative experience related to their trans identities. However, as there has never been a systematic review of literature focused on Native Two-Spirit and LGBTQ individuals, it is difficult to know what disparities and what resiliencies are being effectively recorded and what may be overlooked. So on that light note, 
Um, I do want to get into some more people within the trans community and LGBTQ community who have had a prominent impact on media. Because we did mention Christine Jorgensen at the beginning of the episode, but now I want to get into some more people who I feel like they have names that you'll recognize. Even though I don't really have a segue for this (laughs) portion of the episode, I want to ask you guys, um, did you know that the Matrix can be used as an allegory for the trans experience? Or that the two women who wrote the scripts are transgender and they only came out as publicly trans in 2012? The Wachowski sisters, not twins, I would have known that if I had been born 10 years earlier and had a deeper connection to the Matrix series, but um, unfortunately, I am but a 20-something-year-old girl, (laughs) are very incredible women who had a very successful film career where they created characters that could pertain to not only like heteronormative and cisgendered individuals, but also these characters may apply to people who don't exactly fit the gender norm or yeah. So we are relying on Wikipedia once more to give a little bit of background for those who don't know. So Lana Wachowski and Lily Wachowski are American film and television directors, writers, and producers. They are both trans women, so male to female for those of you who do not know. They have worked as a writing and directing team throughout most of their careers. They made their directing debut in 1996 with Bound and achieved fame with their second film, The Matrix. The Matrix, which is the movie series that I kind of wanted to speak to a little bit more because, hello, I think everyone at least recognizes the name. Since their series finale of Sense8, the Wachowskis have been working separately on different projects. Um, But in between this time, um, their films have had such an impact on the LGBTQ plus community and specifically for trans individuals. And I guess also just queer people in general. Like, can't exactly box anyone in, you know? (laughs) So, regarding The Matrix, they completed the science fiction action film in 1999. The movie stars Keanu Reeves as Neo, a hacker recruited by a rebellion to aid them in a fight against machines who have taken over a world and placed humanity inside a simulated reality called The Matrix. So, from my understanding of it, the plot basically serves as an allegory for the trans experience, meaning that while Neo is totally just a cisgendered heteronormative man who has a crush on um, a hot girl, his character has to go through a similar experience that a trans person would, where they have to reaffirm their identity to themselves and accept that they may not have been born in the right body, but their identity themselves is who they are. I'll explain that better in just a moment. There's another article I wanted to pull up real quick that I thought had some very nice things to say about the Wachowski sisters and their works, including other pieces like Speed Racer, Sense8, in addition to The Matrix. This article is from Collider.com. I really don't know much about it, but they do have a section that's based on like movie features, so I thought I would use them. And I kind of like how this author, Lisa, um, portrays the sisters 
and their work. So she states, To watch something made by the Wachowskis is to get your expectations shattered, your mind blown, and your heart touched. They simulate all these senses at once, and best of all, they do so while crafting features that are gay. Really, really gay. It cannot be stressed enough just how queer the works of the Wachowski sisters are, even when they don't involve explicitly trans characters, like modern TV shows Work in Progress and Sense8. The ways this duo can tap into queer experiences, both visually and thematically, with exciting genre works is truly astonishing, especially since queer-coded works are often restricted to being smaller indies or, or solemn in nature. The Wachowskis bucked this trend by making something as expansive and colorful as Speed Racer, loaded with queer subtext. How the Wachowskis engage with their queer motifs and themes is nothing new for the duo. It dates back to their feature-length directorial debut in 1996's Bound. Part of what makes the Wachowski sisters and their handling of queer material so fascinating is the genres they've chosen to explore as filmmakers. Typically, the duo has entered terrain that often embraces reinforcing cis-hat norms and turning the norms on their head. The Matrix, for instance, ding ding ding, <laughs> this is exactly what I wanted to talk about, was the latest in a long line of sci-fi chosen one narratives, which have typically been used to subliminally suggest that the greatest hero of our society is a cis-hat white guy. While the lead of The Matrix isn't trans, the queer-coded ways in which he reinforces his heroism differs from other narratives of this type. Most notably, Neo's most triumphant moment against Agent Smith comes when he reaffirms that his name is Neo, which is touched in the tragically relatable trans experience of relentless deadnaming. This was the part of the article that I found really, really interesting to me because it kind of ties into the allegory of the trans experience where in one's day-to-day -day life, if they aren't seen as who they present, um, they are likely to get constantly deadnamed, and that can be really damaging for a person. Because it's basically saying, like, hey, I don't respect you as an individual or believe you and that you are who you say you are, to the most extreme extent. The author states that the Wachowskis are not the first queer artists to interact with American genre cinema. Even in the days of the Hayes Code, queer actors and artists abounded in front of and behind the camera, which resulted in oodles of intriguing queer subtext that slipped by potential censors. The Wachowskis were still able to take things even further, largely through the power of hindsight. Some of the ways queerness was reinforced in classic films were beautiful. In other cases, it ended up being a bit on the complicated side. Specifically, the constant coding of antagonists as queer in the face of strong-jawed, decidedly heterosexual male leads was peculiar. This trend was especially notable in the world of film noirs, where promiscuous, morally flexible women often met a grisly end, and features like Peter Lorre's evil henchman in The Maltese Falcon were very queer-coded to reinforce their wickedness. This doesn't mean that movies are all evil or should be locked away in a chest. Given the death of any acknowledgement of queerness in American cinema at this time, just seeing Lore acting a little, you know, feels exciting and subversive. Meanwhile, femme fatales may have existed to reinforce that women should, quote-unquote, stay in their lanes. But they're so much fun to watch that they've now been embraced by modern audiences as icons. The Wachowskis clearly recognize and love the complexities of noirs with their 1996 film Bound. This title is rooted in many of the visual and thematic hallmarks of classic noirs, but is also conscious of subverting the default approach to gender and sexuality in these vintage titles. Conceptually, 
these films were supposed to reinforce the idea that subversive women were wrong and that all queers were evil. The Wachowskis established their streak of appending gender movie norms with Bound by making this film's noir protagonist a couple of gay women who aren't afraid to bend the rules and embrace their queerness. These filmmakers were well aware of how fun noirs and their hallmarks could be. They just wanted to have those hallmarks reinforce the humanity of the marginalized rather than hammer home the status quo. One fun queer element of the Wachowskis is the emphasis on community. Characters coded as queer have families or chosen families that provide them with love and support. Individuals that can represent queer experiences and people aren't surviving alone. They're surrounded by who embrace their unique attributes rather than erase them. They almost function as a wish-fulfillment fantasy for queer viewers. The kind of social environment one wishes they had to help them face off against everyday injustices or prejudices. These tight-knit heroes are in stark contrast to villains who are defined as being adherent to capitalistic impulses, reveling in the lone wolf attitudes, and belonging to the most privileged communities in American society. What is subtext in something like The Speed Racer or Jupiter Ascending gets to flourish as in Textbound. This is a story all about queer folks needing to support each other so they don't suffocate under the strains of conventional society. These types of concepts also kind of remind me of how the Matrix plays out because Neo needs Trinity and they themselves, while conformed to a heteronormative concept of a couple, they still try to break away from what is typically expected of them, specifically with Neo wanting to break out of the Matrix or the system that his brain has been a prisoner to for 20 something years he wants to break out of it and even though the world is scary and new he'd rather experience what's real than what's fake and that you can kind of relate to the queer experience where you're aware of all of the hardships and prejudices that you're facing but you'd rather experience them than try and hide because that is how people get depressed and that is why we need to be more accepting of others um Community is very important, not just in the queer community, but the queer community relies on community in order to keep functioning, which is something that all of us have, but some of us may be taking for granted. Just something to think about. But I did want to touch on this one piece of information that the author highlights. So the author continues to talk about one of the other Wachowski sisters' movies, Bound. She says, Closets in Bound represent places where the humanity of our two leads gets actively shoved away by Caesar, a physical representation of oppressive societal norms. Which kind of reminds me of how Agent Smith treated Neo in The Matrix, trying to tie him down and make him conform to what's expected of him. It is no secret how this connects to the process of coming out of the closet for queer folks of all stripes and that's downright awesome. The lives of queer people have often been sidelined in cinematic narratives to the point of either functioning as just whispers on the margins or not existing at all. With Bound and subsequent directorial efforts, the Wachowski sisters would use visual metaphors to speak to queer experiences in masterfully pronounced ways. Lastly, the author states, Any way you look at it, Bound is the thesis statement for everything that was to come in the works of Lily and Lana Wachowski. That's especially true when it comes to the handling of queer material within this film. The works of this directorial duo are unabashedly queer as they are seeped in the history of movies from all over the world. Their filmography is painted in rainbow colors, but firmly rooted in the hues of cinema's past as well. Poke around through any corner of their filmography and you'll find examples of this, but Bound establishes their gifts in this department. Whether it's the emphasis on queer solidarity, the types of villains in their works, 
or the ways they shift around genre norms to reaffirm queerness, Bounds got it all. So there you go. Those are all of my articles that I wanted to share with you guys today. So now not only do you have an excuse to go rewatch The Matrix, but maybe you'll check out Bound or some of the other Wachowski sisters films as well. And maybe you'll even check out their TV series Sense8. But that is everything that I have for you today. Um, I just wanted to give you some more pieces of history and pop culture references that really make you think about things that you may see in your everyday life um, in a different way. With that, um, this has been Think Pink. Thank you so much for listening. This is my final episode of the semester and I'm so happy to have all of you listening along with me and letting me talk your ear off. (laughs) I would like to thank our sponsors for helping produce this podcast and as well all of you for listening. I hope after this episode you've learned more about yourself and a little bit about those around you. Again, this has been Think Pink. I'm your host Ellie Cooper and I hope to think pink with all of you next time if there is a next time. (laughs) But yeah, thank you for listening to my last episode of Think Pink of the semester. It means a lot and I hope you re-listen to some of my previous episodes. All right, thank you very much. Bye-bye.